After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. everybody. It is Raghu Marcus with Mind Rolling and uh, another. I've had a lot of old friends on Dave lately. David Nick Turn. Welcome. 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 Thank you, Raghu. I mean, you're not that old. So, jeez. Uh, I'm old, but not that old a friend. Why? I mean, it's pretty old. I mean, it's got to be 10 15, 20, 25, 20 years, at least 20, 25 years. But most of your friends you've known for 50 years. Okay, shut up. <laughs> and longer. <laughs> okay, what do you, we haven't caught up at all. Where have you been these days? What so, are you doing? Right now I'm in New York City in my apartment and uh, looking out over the East River, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I uh, recently came back from L.A. teaching a, a meditation That's teacher right. training course there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, now, uh, geez, I wish you could have stayed over. We had a big uh, showing, screening of Becoming Nobody, our new Ramdas movie. I, I missed you by one day, unfortunately. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, it would have been nice. We Because uh, so after the film, we had a little bit of a panel and talked about becoming nobody what does that mean i actually had a long talk with ramdas yesterday about it really yeah we went through it again we uh, he wanted to go through uh, because it can get very uh it can get very intellectual and you know we have to watch out for the buddhists and what they do with becoming nobody (laughs) (laughs) Or, or it can be overly emotional which is ah. on the side of the uh, bhakti people. But uh, y- you give me your impression of what are we talking about with becoming nobody? Well, you know, Raghu, these days a lot, I'm going with first thought, best thought. from Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> there's yeah. not much else to hold on to at mm. the moment. So the first thought I had was um, him saying, you can't attend your own funeral. <laughs> Trump said that. Yeah, you cannot attend your own funeral. And? Well, you can unravel that. Um, Of course, we're always watching ourselves. You know, we're confirming our existence, right? With a second take, which is roughly called ego, right? That (laughs) second take is roughly called ego. And then it has a lot of elaborations. From a Buddhist point of view, it gets quite ornate. 
So you know what? Back up to second take. And, yeah. And and let's uh, divvy that up a little bit. What do we, what? Yeah. Give an example of that. So we are all in the page. Yeah. Well, you know, this gets a little bit into Buddhist psychology called Abhidharma. But basically, the the first take, well, you could say it starts with zero take, no take, just, you know, things are happening, right? There's nobody checking on anything. Then, uh, you know, first take is maybe some kind of spontaneous or direct communication, instantaneous communication. The second take is you start checking, how am I doing? Right, and that's where that's where everything starts to glitch. <laughs> and if you looked at it in slow motion, it kind of it, it takes shape uh, through a process called the skandhas. The you know the, the 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 consciousness sort of bubbles up and flowers up and unfolds as this very rapid sequence of elaboration of that second take, all the way through from just a, starting with just a very crude sense of self. You know, very very rough uh, dual double take all the way up to a very refined and elaborated who you think you are, which is the six realms, you know, as we've talked about before. Mm. Mm. Um, okay, but uh, let's uh, get a little further on becoming nobody. Well, you're going backwards then. <laughs> yeah. All right, go backwards. No, that's Started the premise. zero, right? That's no. Actually, Ramdas in the film says you've, where I even have it here. You've got to be get to zero, basically something like that. Get yeah. to zero, and then he and then it all translates into um, basically service by the end of it. That there's nothing left to do. You stop yeah. thinking about yourself all the time. What do I need? What do I want? Yeah. And, uh, so, which is the premise, of course, in the movie of there's a somebody gets created and then that somebody gets dissolved into a nobody. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, that's what... Get back to zero. That's what we would say. You start mm-hmm. at zero, and you're, getting, you're going back to zero. So it's undoing. You know, I think most of what people consider practice, if you really look at it, it's undoing some kind of fabricated sense of self. And piece by piece, if you need to, you know, you just un- follow, the, follow the string back to where it came from. And, and going back to a kind of more innocent, you know, more direct sense of being that is unfabricated. Mm. It's a bad case of mistaken identities. Really. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think I might have even used that expression in my new book. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it's, it's not that there's, um, well, we would say, you know, some people would say no self, but I really think that gets people into a lot of trouble. Um, because obviously we have some kind of individual journey going on. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. So it's more a case of mistaken sense of self or an illusory sense of self. Yeah. It's, it's, it's poorly understood what that individual identity is. Mm. Yeah, something like oh, that. By the way, here's Dave's new book. Oh, wow. Isn't that pretty? That's a beautiful cover, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which it's, uh, by the way, creativity, oh. spirituality, and making a buck. So uh, what led you to, where'd you get this? Well, it's what we're doing right now, isn't it? We're a nonprofit. There's no <laughs> you don't get a salary? Oh, I do. I do. I, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, something like that. Not a, I actually don't work for this gang here. I'm a uh-huh. tenant contractor. 
Yeah. Well, look, just to make everybody comfortable, we're really just talking about right livelihood yeah. from a Buddhist context point of view. But, you know, uh, that the book, which is coming out October 8th, uh, but we're sort of sneaking it out in a couple of locations first, um, is really about integrating these three aspects or dimensions of our experience, right? So creativity, everybody knows what that, that's all about. You're trying to express yourself some way. Um, many, many people have different ways of doing that. And then the uh, spirituality, I just mean by spirituality, just uh, being well, you know, uh, taking care of yourself properly, uh, having a good mind and body uh, experience while you're alive. That's, that to me is what I mean by spirituality, some kind of health. Um, without activity, you know, even if you're sitting alone in a room, you feel healthy, you feel good, you feel alert, you feel sensitive, you feel open-hearted. You know, to me, that's what spirituality is cultivates. And the making a buck part is just a kind of fun way of talking about prosperity, livelihood. Um, personally, I, I have never seen a contradiction between those three areas. They seem to be just different faces of, of, uh, of living in the world. So I'm talking about them in, in a way that is, doesn't make you have to choose between one or the other, which a lot of people do. Yeah. Oh, the bifurcation of the, just spirituality, however, which way you want to talk about it, and the rest of our life, sexuality, career, family, everything. Uh, it just reminds me of a crazy thing I got to tell you. I don't know. You do know, and I think many of the mind-rolling listeners do know as well, uh, we had a mentor back in the day when we were in India with Neem Karoli Baba named K.C. Tuari. Oh, yeah. Right? And We've heard lots about him, sure. Speaks of him as his Indian father, and he was an Indian father to, to many of us. Hmm. Uh, uh, so... One of the things that uh, we found out, we used to visit him at his home in, in, uh, in the Himalayas. Uh, it lived in a town, in uh, Nanny Town. He, he lived way at the top of the hill, and you could just see the, the snow peaks just go out his door. Boom, there they were. And uh, so he was really a yogi. Mm. In fact, we're doing a film about him that'll be amazing because he, he was a... a, 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 a a teacher at a school. Actually, he ran a school, Beerless School, up there, and he dressed in normal clothes, just slacks and and uh, you know sport jackets and so on. Yet he was a knocked out yogi. I mean, it's just a really fascinating story. My kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, he would, <laughs> yeah. You will love this. We, we we call this hidden yogi. Yeah, hidden yogi, hidden yeah. yogi. Maybe we should yeah. change it to hidden yogi. I don't know, but. Uh, the bottom line is that because of his work, so this fits in a little bit with your book, not a little bit, a lot. He mm -hmm. did the, what he needed to do at work, and he took care of these children, and he taught them, and he administrated whatever his job was. He did. But in order to do it, he'd have to get up very early in the morning because he would not step out the door without him doing his, his puja. And so he... So he would get up and do it. And then I'm talking hours, you know, so he'd be up, you know, four to seven or something, four to six, something like that. At one point, his children, he had two sons and a daughter, would get up and obviously get prepared to go to school. And they'd want to 
come in and hey dad we're doing this that and the other and they but one day he he told them you do not interrupt me when i'm doing this and the sons told us much later on that one day he got so fierce he took up his dagger pulwa whatever they call that right because they're right Herba. Herba, yeah. yeah he yeah. took that up. He went like that. Yeah. Never came back again. So uh, talk about integrating um, work and spirituality and family life. That's Casey. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I did to Ethan when he was 21. You did? <laughs> I raised the Herba and said, don't come back. <laughs> really? No. You're on your own. Uh, yeah. I, I meant, you know, uh, creating some kind of independence. Yeah, yeah. But that's a whole other topic, obviously. He is a person then who's trying to live a very full, rich existence. There's not a lot of manuals for this. This is more of an oral tradition, and it is a tradition uh, of how to live a, a kind of hidden yogi or worldly practitioner, lay practitioner it's called. So basically, Raghu, there's two traditions of lay practitioners, the ones that support the monastics and the, and the practitioners, you know, with donations and, uh, you know, kind of material support, but they're not really taken seriously as an individual practitioner. And then there's the yogi style, which is what um, Tawari sounds like, where there's a high level of possibility for practice realization, but they just stay right in the world. They don't, they don't become a renunciate. Yeah. Those are two really, you know, legitimate traditions in all these, in all these, um, lineages yeah it was it's pretty unusual for neem karoli bamba because he had it was although tuari was certainly a family uh bhakta devotee but he was also this incredible yogi that did all kinds of austerities actually with another saint who lived in that area that uh at the same time as as uh, maharaji so it's a pretty interesting story and how he integrated uh his family life with his practice and the kinds of austerities that he did it was it's a pretty wild story that'll be up next year on uh love serve remember films it's our next project well the, the thread that goes through this ragu is how do you frame your in one's own individual existence in terms of balancing uh these different elements and as far as i could tell for for many millennia there's been a dichotomy both in the spiritual world and the material world where they see the other one as the other, you know? So, yeah. you know, you have very famous Buddhist masters, maybe even included the Buddha. I, I don't, I don't know. The Buddha's multidimensional, but saying that you better renounce this world of this samsara, this red dust world. And right now just spit it out and don't, don't, don't even look back. Mm. And many famous teachers have said words exactly to that uh, effect. And then you have, um, you know, you're, you have your materialistic pursuits where somebody says, you know, what are you wasting your time with that stuff for? Get, get, make some money, you know, develop your career, uh, make a record, you know. So the idea of, of there not being a, a kind of war between those two elements is a very important yeah. theme for me. It was a very important theme of studying with Trungpa Rinpoche. It was, it was in a way, he was de definitively declaring that to be the, the path that his students were on, that he was on. So in that realm, you see every activity as kind of richly embellished with the possibility of seeing it as some kind of practice. 
yeah. some kind of sacred experience. Yeah. Every experience, even you know, the most mundane, is is charged that way. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a great and wonderful point. Um, in the book, uh, you talk about something that I think also can be very helpful. Uh, to people. Often the main thing uh, blocking our ability to be present and see clear is our minds are too busy and unstable, which we all know about that. And you refer to a t- Tibetan word, kuntag, which refers to an illus- illusory sense of reality. <laughs> Some mm-hmm. of us have that. Uh, an overlay of projections and filters we project onto things as they are. And it's translated as random fixation. <laughs> and jumping so yeah let's let's talk about that for a minute because yeah. and, and what the antidote is because that's that's such uh geez that's the biggest thing that's going on day to day with everybody as far as i'm concerned sure and if you have any sense of humor you can appreciate it without being terribly upset yeah exactly and you I, can see see exactly. your own quintock you know you can yeah. you know it's not something to get angry about particularly or ruthless about um but yeah, so that's going back to the second take that we were talking about. Yeah. Once, you're, once you're in that second take world where is it me? Is it you? What's happening? Uh, it's actually called the threefold purity in classical Buddhism. Where you get stuck is you think, who are you? Who am I? And what's happening? Those are the three, uh, the three sort of um, random fixations. They, they revolve around that. And when you liberate those, there's um, you know, clarity about who you are, who you're talking to, and what's happening. And it's also very integrated, you know. So the person doesn't become your friend. They don't become your enemy. They don't become neutral. They, they, you have some kind of open uh, tunnel that you can communicate through. Mm. So Kuntak is the opposite of that. It's like I freeze you as my enemy. Oh, Raghu, did you hear what Raghu said about you, Dave? You know, he said your guitar was out of tune mm. for that whole kirtan. Ah, okay, he did, huh? Well, what does he know about that? You know, so then you're off to the races. You know, and every, the next time I see you, I don't see you. I see like red, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and then you know, you see some beautiful person that you you know didn't meet before, and it's like you start fantasizing about them and thinking, oh, that this this is what I really need. You know, this will really fix my wagon. So you become attached to that projection while rejecting the other one. And then most of the time, there's a sort of a, a gray fog of dullness. That's the, I call it the cast of thousands. It's like you don't even know those people were in the room. <laughs> yeah. So those three are the highlights of yeah. Kuntak. You know, Kuntak starts in second take. Uh, you start to, to project uh, friends, enemies, and neutrals and freeze them and obsess on them, obsess on your relationship to them. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, I do take umbrage with uh, <laughs> you have a reference to me here and it's a very, very loose one. And I'm sure you weren't really thinking of it, but you, our untrained minds are used to jumping from topic to topic, obsessing for a brief moment on whatever arises, and then jumping like a frog to the next topic. Okay. So now you have a few different characterizations of what that is. And one of them is spaghetti mind. So I immediately <laughs> thought of Raghu. And, uh, Okay, a perfect example right in the moment you of what you're talking about. I must have been talking about you, obviously. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah some, froggy some, mind. Yeah, sometimes I call it. You know, I'm t- we've tried to get across this idea to to get a start with people of like that. Maybe their current mind is not so accurate. 
you know, uh, and that's, you mm -hmm. have to get that idea in there. Otherwise somebody wouldn't practice. They would say my mind is fine as it is right now. So, um, uh, you know, monkey mind is the one that's the most popular. Right. Uh, but I, I have others in there. You can see them. I have spaghetti mind for the foodies and I have, um, James Joyce mind yeah. for the literati because, you know, you remember he used no punctuation, just like stream of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so great. Yeah. Um, Okay, here's another Tibetan term that's good mm. to unravel. Mm. It's called tendril. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great one. And it's synchronization, uh, auspicious coincidence. Because I think this is important because it hooks up with uh, the more that you're intuitively, intuitively connected, the more of this seems to manifest. Absolutely. Auspicious coincidence. Well, so to just frame this in the book, I'm sort of going between two poles one is very intuitive you know and kind of experiential and the other is do you know what you're doing like just from the conventional point of view so when we're talking about business and so forth um there's a lot of principles like how to how to plan how to do a business plan that you you see people over and over again from the spiritual world getting into like starting a yoga studio or something like that mm. and then then they don't understand these sort of very tangible principles um you know, would be the equivalent of water boiling at two two twelve or what it is. You sit there, you watch the pot, it never boils, and you go, "What's wrong with this situation?" You just didn't know one thing. So I go between like, let's learn the principles and the kind of grounded reality, but at the same time, notice uh, kind of the uh, flavor of being in tune or in sync, because that also is a form of guidance. Those two things together can really guide you to the right places. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you've you of course look. You guys tell those stories. I mean, those are all tendril. Everything you talk about with Maharaji yeah. appearing in the right place at the right time, and uh, right. you know, I think when we're really paying attention and really tuned in, there's more tendril. And they say that the atmosphere of a teacher like Maharaji or Trungpa Rinpoche or Karmapa is almost all tendril. It's like it's like uh, they, they they say that these great masters command coincidence that's the phrase that they use mm. they don't just write it yeah. like we're trying to like find it and get a, get grab it by the ankle then there's a level of writing it when it happens you can navigate and their level is just they can it's almost like it's obeying their their uh, intention you know yeah. or they yeah they're in the complete flow with what is and there's there's no yeah. objectivity you know so yeah um so all right all right well let's take a little bit of a a break in some of these arcane Tibetan terms that you've explained so wonderfully in this book. And because uh, the book is about also, and there's a lot of wonderful anecdotes in it of you and your own experiences. And uh, there's a main thread here when we're talking about right livelihood. So I think it, yeah. we, we sure need to hear from you when you were uh, a little bit younger and creating, uh, well, the music and the label and what were the actual things that you went through in terms of uh, maybe some of the mistakes that people yeah. make that you made, etc. Well, and again, the book is equally really, I think pretty equally weighted between, you know, good solid Buddhist or generic spiritual kind of practitioner advice for, uh, you know, for for people who've been doing it for a while, but also for people who haven't and want to know more about it in a way that they can assimilate. And then the second tier is the um, is creativity, which is um, 
you know, art and expression, which has been obviously an important part of my life. And it's, I think for a lot of people, and then just the, the kind of, um, entrepreneurial or, or, um, professional aspect of living in the world where you need to kind of, uh, you can't just bring a bunch of crystals <laughs> to your job and hope for the best, you know, and spread them around on your desk. I mean, that, that is like, um, a kind of, I mean, sure you can, but if you don't understand cash flow, that won't help you. You know, if you don't understand what uh, planning and execution looks like, that won't help you. If you don't understand, you know, the structure of a leadership situation, that won't help you. So it's, it's kind of moving into these three zones. And in the book, I kind of travel between them a little bit. They each has a section, but I also traveling. And I'm saying maybe there's one reality underlying all three. That's my premise. Maybe it's just one world you live in. You're just one person. You're living your life as fully and richly as you can. And you're trying to be cohesive and, and, you know, that's, I don't find a lot of people talking about that. That's a, I think that's a conversation that's coming up for a lot of people. The people from the material side are coming towards the spiritual world. The people in the spiritual world are coming towards the business world. And, uh, you know, so I think it's a timely, a timely conversation mm. to have. Yeah. Um, but both of us, both you and I right. started record labels. Yeah, fools that we were. And everyone, I had actually people say, you are foolish, you know, <laughs> what are you trying to do? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was a passion. I mean, it was Krishnas and I at, at that sure. time and, and Paul Sloman. Um, it, but it, it was certainly, it rose out of a big passion that we had and we felt we wanted to share. And so from from there on, of course, we learned as as we went on a day-to-day basis we had a you know we had a lot of mentors and people who knew what they were doing who mostly laughed at us and i don't know what kept us going i mean yeah. ultimately i i really have no idea and and of course in the middle of uh, after the first five or six years Krishnadas decided he wanted to put chant records out which he <laughs> or it was just going to be oh okay why not we we got the label we can do whatever we want yeah and the rest is history of course and that of course may be a prime reason for how this thing gestated and so on but but certainly you're talking about creativity there was a big passion we did have a big passion and we our cash flow ideas of cash flow and what the hell that was at the time i mean i had been in business so i did have an idea Right. But uh, not not hands on the way that I needed to be after all of that. So what happened with you? What was the thing that yeah. got that label going? Well, and uh, you know, just for reference, what I say in the book, I'm mainly uh, sharing my mistakes. That's mm-hmm. that's mainly what I'm doing. So that if you want to, and if it sounds familiar, you could maybe save yourself years or decades of not doing the same thing. But you can't guarantee that people have to make their own mistakes. But here's the mistake that I made. Um, and I used the record label as a model for not under, not applying strictly enough business principles to the activity, the creative activity, um, you know, of, of starting a label, um, because those principles don't go away just because you think you like the music, you know, um, you have to sell the music if you're in, in the record business. So, um, I started, uh, two labels and I had a concept for it. Uh, it was very clearly what I was trying to do. 
um, which was one label was called Dharma Moon, which was a kind of yoga-ish la label that had, you know, kind of, uh, you know, music you could play in yoga classes, massages, well-being, that kind of thing, which was a pretty good zone at the time. It was blossoming. There, a lot of people were getting into this about 20 years ago. People were getting into yoga. There was a lot of use. The problem was because of the shift in technology and other reasons, my math was based on selling about 20,000 units per, per release on a good, healthy release. But by the time I got to it, you were lucky if you sold 2,000. So yeah. I miscalculated my timeline my, where I entered the, the market. Mm. Uh, and I was going from a kind of nostalgic point of view, you know, but, and not really being precise enough. Mm. Even though we did exactly what I set out to do, and that was supposed to be the sustainable base for the for the company, and it would have been at those at those higher numbers. Then uh, I had a second label called Five Points Records, and the idea of that one was, well, let's come closer to pop music and electronica, and you know, a little more like the stuff that I have been involved with over the years, and let's get some hits out of that. And one notion of the hit would be that we would find an artist, develop the artist, and then what's called upsell them to a major label. You know, that's, that's a pretty standard possibility. You develop, and that's really what you have to do now is you have to develop an artist to a certain point before a major label even is going to get interested. So that concept was good too, but record sales also came down by about a factor of 10. So even when you had something really burning through, it was a, a, different, a different kind of margin. Um, and you know, many, many pursuits, like writing a Broadway musical, like record labels, your odds are pretty slim for being successful. There's a lot of wannabes. You and I were wannabes. And um, you have to kind of at least lock in to principles like understanding what kind of financing you need, what kind of sales and marketing you're going to develop, what the market is that you're addressing. You know, these are things that are like you learn in business school. They have nothing to do with any particular business, but business in general. So the long story short is there's a joke, which I'm sure you heard somewhere along the way. Maybe you didn't. How do you make $5 million in the record business? You start with 10. <laughs> no, I never heard that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... I do <laughs> understand it fully. Though. <laughs> so, you know... And the irony is, along the way, at, when I closed the label down, I actually started to make a um, reasonable return from my investment. Because <laughs> one, one of the artists that I signed, um, we actually did s sell you know, them to a major label, and they went on to become a big star, Lana Del Rey. Yeah. You know, she is. Yeah. So, you know, it all plays out, uh, it all plays out in funny ways. Um, but mainly, we've learned now, here's what I'm going to say, Raghu. You learned from that experience. You actually have a record label again right now. It's called the Be Here Now Network. Look yeah. at it. You're putting talent on the air. You're finding people. You're trying to get them to be professional in their presentation. You're trying to put a comment, whether it's a nonprofit or not, doesn't matter. You want to make money. Uh, you just want to spend it the right way, which is true uh, ultimately anyhow. And so you're using everything you learned, aren't you? Are you not? I am absolutely, and in fact, we're actually we have a record we put out. So on <laughs> the podcast network, it's this East Forest Ramdas uh, synthesis, where this amazingly talented young man 
uh, went and asked and said, I'd like to do this. He showed me what he was doing a little bit. I said, go do it. He went and he recorded just hanging out with Ram Dass talking and Ram Dass said a bunch of great stuff. And he took that and he sound, you know, sound bites and created the uh, Krishnas is one on the one called, you haven't heard this thing, Dave? I have heard little pieces of it. Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. Krishnas yeah. is on the uh, loving awareness track. So it just came out last week. Uh, the full album we've been releasing pieces of it so it uh, is all happening and everything of course i the, the business is completely different now than it was then but it was on the way to that uh when we were doing it back then and and i'll say one of the things though, uh, aside from for me there was a real passion to do it and then making it into a business there was a lot of grace involved that's all i got to tell you <laughs> okay. sure yeah and uh at at the same time we we had a really definitive idea of what it was that we wanted to uh, share with people, put out. Yep, yep. And uh, that, uh, we stuck to that, even at times to our detriment a little bit when, say, New Age music was super popular. We mm -hmm. were doing, you know, we went and did some smooth jazz stuff with Walter Becker, for instance. Sure, yeah, I remember. And, uh, which were, they were beautiful records, but, uh, uh grp had that market you know the, yeah the jazz yeah. label um, and so we we had to re uh reimagine what we were doing so i think that's a part of the creative process big time yeah that you're in present enough to know when you re you do need to reimagine stuff as 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 conditions change which is kind of like what you're saying is a reflection of what we do inside ourselves. Exactly. As conditions change. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the thread of those three topics in this book and in my, and in my life, in my world, are integrated. In other words, it's not so much like, oh, well, you can do, get away with this over here and then you can do this over there. So in the business principles, like which is the middle part of the book, for one thing, I lay out some very concrete uh, business entrepreneurial type of principles that if you can find your way around them, good luck. But I mean, I, they're like gravity as far as I'm concerned. A lot of businesses tank with cash flow. They're about to grow and then they don't have cash flow. A lot of people um, don't understand timeline. You know, you say, oh, well, this was our, uh, what were our projections for the first half of the year, but we're going to make it in the second half of the year. So everything's fine. Everything's not fine. You just you can't just move a timeline around and just expand it. Mm. So these are just general principles. But the other half is ethical principles of how do you conduct yourself personally and in a business way. And as far as I'm concerned, those are like I've come to the point at, at you know at 71 years of age. It took a, it took a while. I have a pretty Henniana basic sense of ethics. It's like don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. It's no matter how clever you are, no matter how tantric you are. You know, whatever. Just tell the truth. I mean, you know, I quoted Maharaji in the book. I don't know if you got to that part yet, but I said, right in the early stages of, of the book, I said, you know, there are certain pith instructions given by by great teachers. One sentence, two sentences that you could chew on for years. And I gave a couple of examples. And one of the main examples I gave was Maharaji saying, um, you know, love everyone and tell the truth. That's what I call a pith instruction. You can get fancy, all fancy pants about what you're doing and the nine this and the 10 that. But if you're not doing that, you know, that's a real, that's a real compass, a, re a real, um, you know, 
Geiger counter. And so um, the idea of ethical conduct, which is the foundation of Buddhism, you know, cannot slip away because you think you're doing some, you know, fancier iteration of it. And, and even if you develop cities and kind of, you know, the capacity to work a little bit of magic on an intuitive level, those things are really rock foundation. They're like the rock and foundation. So in the business, I say, here's certain grounded principles and also here's certain ways to conduct yourself. And then even if you fail, you didn't fail. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, my favorite thing in the whole book is? No. And I, I, I haven't entirely finished it, but uh, uh, this was good enough for me. I'm happy to just have uh, Uncle Irv. Okay? Ah, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Tell the story, Uncle Irv. I mean, everybody's got an Uncle Irv. I had an Uncle yeah. Jack. Yeah, it's cos it's a cosmic thing, and I talk about it as a cos. But and and uh, so this was my actual uncle Irv Irving Joseph, and you know everybody has guides in this life. You know we you know even spiritual people talk about guides and and spirit guides. So he was one of my guides for sure. He was my mother's youngest brother, and he was a musician. So that was interesting because I had no idea that's what I was going to be, but he was modeling that behavior from the time I was very young. And he was a brilliant piano player, jazz player. I mean, he toured with Tommy Dorsey's band when he was 16 years old. He played with Frank Sinatra back in the day, Nina Simone. He conducted Jesus Christ Superstar. He was like the real thing, you know. And um, so when I tuned into the idea right out of college, maybe this is my livelihood. And I talk about it in the book, is your offering your livelihood or is it a hobby? I said, well, maybe this part of my offering is my livelihood. Um, he kind of, you know, was somebody who had done that. So that you, you, you go like, oh gosh, this is even possible. And I remember him taking me down to the local 802, the AFM, the Musicians Union in New York, and you needed a sponsor and he sponsored me and, you know, signed me up for the union. Mm, that's the beauty, eh? Yeah, so, I mean, and then the first gig, I, hardcore gig I ever played was so interesting. I got out of college. I didn't really know exactly what I was doing, but I was a good musician. and. Um, my mother produced a Broadway show. That's another person in my family who was in the creative side. And she was the first woman ever to win a Tony Award. On, you know, so she was a, 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 a mocker, a player in Broadway. Not just, not just you know, a person, but a serious hardball player. So she produced a show uh, which was called Jimmy Shine. And it opened on Broadway. And it had um, Dustin Hoffman starring in it. And, and Cleavon Little. Those were the two known stars of it. And um, it had songs by John Sebastian in it. That The music was by John Sebastian. And I got through, definitely through having some connection, I got an audition with John, who I hadn't met yet, and he hired me. And so that, you know, I don't think he would have if I couldn't have cut it, but I, I mean, he was happy to, to, um, to, oops, sorry about that. Why is that? I have it on off, but it's still ringing. Sorry, folks. Um, so, <clears throat> blame Apple. Yeah. So, <laughs> then, then, um, you yeah, blame Apple. Um, you have to praise them if you're going to do that too. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, I got the job, and we toured out of town for 
six months. Then we opened on Broadway and I played the show for about a year. That was my first professional gig was working with John Sebastian and Dustin Hoffman on Broadway. <laughs> um, Uncle Irv, was the, who was my mom's brother, was the piano player and music director. Mm-hmm. So it's totally a family kind of situation. And um, so Uncle Irv, there's two stories I tell in the book about Uncle Irv. One is his, his, um, is about the tendril, the synchronicity aspect, where he was capable of, he, he, we did a recording of him playing some cocktail music, 30 songs in a row, modulations, tempo changes, one take, 54 minutes, one take. Let's see who can do that. And then he just lifts his hands up like that. So this is, I said, he just dropped into the zone. All the things we're talking about at our retreats, he was doing. He was being here now. He was communicating, you know, from that ground. And he had skills. Then the other story I tell is that at the age of 75, he decided to play his first ever classical concert. In other words, he's been a known jazz musician for uh, 55 years, 60 years, but he'd never played a recital. So he booked Carnegie Recital Hall. We, we made up a, 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 um, you know, a billboard for it, you know, with the, the pieces he was going to play. He's practicing five hours a day at 75, and then he just got sick. And then he got sicker. And then um, we were all in the hospital and he passed away one month before he could play that concert. Yeah. Yeah. So I give that as an example of like, you can't control the outcome. That's not why we're creative. That's not why we're spiritual. We're we're doing what we do with the fullest heart that we can do it. We leave it on the field, you know, and um, then, then, you know, the powerful quality of reality has impermanence embedded in it. And then the final thing I'll say about it is I was in the hospital with him and it was apparent that he was about to go. And I, I did give ear whispered instructions. I told him where, you know, what to, how to handle his mind going into leaving the body and so things like that. And he looked up at me, he said, I'm leaving the magic circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. That's the last thing he ever said. Wow. The magic circle, that's where we are. Yeah. It's a good uh, analogy. Oh, boy. Um, At some point here, you talk about um, and mention one thing that tripped me into another thing, spaghetti mind. Um, (laughs) um, And you talked about uh, your... If you're like me, you don't enjoy reading manuals. So I, I went right away, I am you, absolutely. <laughs> and then you mention how His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, of course, who right. said, talks about this all the time, and, he, and says, I love taking watches apart and putting them back together. Right? So it led me to start thinking about Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yeah. That book. Totally, yeah. There's two kinds of people. One, yeah. they see a motorcycle and they just want to take it apart and put it back together. That is delight. Yeah. The other one walks by and goes, whoa, what an amazing Harley, eh? <laughs> <laughs> two, and yeah. they rock the whole thing and, and it's a com- two completely different 
kinds of personalities that he talks about in this book, which I yeah. Yeah, always love. Yeah, you know, and I think you find that in our communities a lot. There's the people who are doctrinaire. They really like the doctrine. They really like the, you know, um, the details of the teachings. And, and then there's the touchy-feely types, you know, who just maybe remember one thing somebody said, and it's, you know, it, and, and they hold it. So it probably has something to do with right brain and left brain, you know, integration. And um, you can feel when you feel resistance. That's always an interest. To me, I look at this like weightlifting. You should practice your weak arm. Most mm. of us are practicing with our strong arm and going, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. But you should practice more with the weak arm. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it depends if you want to develop yourself really very fully. But in my tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the way I was taught, it's both m massively intellectual in a way. It has tremendous amount of subtlety and detail. And you're just taking a leap, you know. I mean, how's this for a description of Buddhist Tantra? You go up in a jet plane with your teacher, right? Your teacher knows how to fly the plane. He teaches you how to fly the plane. There's one parachute on the plane. He takes it and jumps out of the plane. <laughs> yeah, right? So, you know, that, that means, you, you, you know, uh, a, 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 a compadre of mine, I were talking earlier today, you know, because our teachers, as yours has been, has been dead for many decades. Trung Rinpoche died 30 years ago, at least. And so there you are. You know, you, you, can, you can access Maharaji or Trung Rinpoche within your mind's eye, within your, you know, within your inner eye and ear, but you, you can't talk to them. You can't say, what about this, what about that? And I think people who think that's I a literal- talk to him. You do? Well, we should talk. Uh, how do you know, I mean, this is just a kind of, straightforward kind of question not meant to um, be provocative how do you know it, that it's him talking back there's no talking back <laughs> there's just but no honestly oh but that's funny it's not like a rational dialogue kind of right. thing going on and right. um and and circumstances appear or things happen um maybe not right away, but in some time that give me more um, uh, depth to yeah. whatever it was that yeah. was going on. And even some of the most, uh, you know, mundane things that I might be yeah. chatting with them about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but it's not, not, not that kind of, Hey, I'm going to call you up. Yeah. How are you doing? It's not that. He, yeah. But, he, yeah. He answers through the phenomenal world. Yeah. The message. Or, or through yeah. dreams or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, or just uh, suddenly you pick up a book and, you know, I see something that I was really internally wondering about. And I might read uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who I love, as you know. Yeah. And, and, and I'll see that just, just manifestation of guru. Yeah. All of yeah. it. In that way, you can almost think of guru as the operating system. Mm. It's embedded in all the programs, you know. Yeah. Totally. That, that's yeah. great. And I mean, yeah. actually, I say when I first met Neem Karoli Baba, it was like, aside from all of the, oh, my God, I've known him forever, home and all the stuff that everybody says, I, I thought, and I don't think I used that analogy, but I look back and say it was like a computer. It just knew <laughs> the right thing to do for each individual person. It wasn't something that was thinking about doing anything. It was just yeah. 
happening within that field. On that topic, Raghu, did you ever see the movie Her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what it's about, uh, briefly, for those Joaquin, who didn't... Joaquin yeah, Phoenix. Joaquin right? Phoenix. Yeah. It's an operating system that becomes sentient. Mm. And it, it, it can communicate to the different people as in real time with a language they understand and, and it's adapting to them as it goes. And he falls in love with her. Uh, it, whatever, the thing. And she mirrors it back. And she says, okay, I'll be your lover. You know, yeah. no, no problem. Yeah. And then there's this just incredible moment, which I just makes me laugh even to think about it. He's sitting on a subway and he has this insight. She's not mine, alone. And he goes, maybe she has the capacity to be conducting this level of intimacy with how many others? So she, he asks her, you know, on the phone, uh, how many others are there? Which is just like a lover's question, you know? And she goes, well, at this level of intimacy, I mean, we're really pretty progressed, you know, something like 84,683 uh, <laughs> people. And it's just this moment where you go, this is a different level of capacity to communicate. And she's the OS, you know? So it's an interesting way of, of thinking about, uh, yeah. about these things, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. Um, okay, there's something from Trungpa that I never knew about that you uh, talk about. Uh, it's a teaching called Hierarchy. Oh, yeah. Complaint. Gossip. <laughs> <laughs> communication in an enlightened society. What the hell is he, what's that about? Well, you know, the, the, the kind of provocative thing about his teaching was that he was even talking about social society and things, and, you know, groups of people. Because as you know, a lot of these things are individually lodged. And in the Mahayana teachings or the kind of like serving people teachings, the Bodhisattva aspect, at least you're trying to connect with other people and help them out. But what form does that take? Is there some kind of structure that can be created and which can contain a Mahayana society? What kind of banks would we have? What kind of police would we have? What kind of military would there be? You know, if it was a true Mahayana society. So um, this is, this is um, the idea of once you start, uh, uh, like a spiritual community starts taking on structure or any community, how does that work? And of course, he created a lot of hierarchical structures, which was traditional from where he, from whence he came. It was much more traditional to have that. Hmm. Uh, but Americans are rebels, you know. By by, you know, we we started this whole place by just going fuck you to everybody, basically. King George, yeah. Can we say that in the podcast? Oh, uh, we'll run this through the. Uh, <laughs> I know on cable you can do it. I know, yeah, okay. So um, he, you know, he he um, uh, began to deal with the dilemma of people taking on positions of responsibility, which you have in your in your community. You know, people have positions, they have posts, they're responsible for certain things, and how can they work with other people who are maybe working underneath them for them, uh, higher up in the hierarchy and have it be sort of cohesive, but also open-ended. In other words, open-hearted. And so that's where this idea of lids and flowers came in. So the sort of autocratic version of hierarchy is lids. You, you, you take a lid and you put it on the person, and that's as high as they're going to go. Mm -hmm. 
you see that a lot. I mean, golly, we're seeing that a lot, you know. Uh, so there's no inspiration for people to ascend into a kind of, uh, you know, higher position or, or you know, take more, more leadership responsibility. But he said the, the, the better way to think of it or another way to think of it is flowers grow to different heights, but they're all going towards the sun. They're, they're all uh, receiving the, and they all have a sort of limitless opportunity to ascend in a way by their nature and by their karma. So that was, he was making that distinction between lids and flowers. And I think in business world, you see companies, it's very interesting, you know, to look at lids and flowers within a company. Uh, are, are people feeling repressed, suppressed, stressed out, tense, you know, um, or are they, do they like going to work? You know, a lot of people don't like going to work. <laughs> to say the least. But that's too bad. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That's, that talk was about lids and flowers. And also, you know, there's the gossip thing that was in there. I tell meditation students, I says, say to them, if you meditate 20 minutes a day, you can gossip 20 minutes a day, but that's all. <laughs> <laughs> what about complaints? Uh, how long do we get complaints? 35 seconds max. That's it. <laughs> you're almost always wrong when you're complaining. Yeah. There's another chapter in the book that says, don't whine, don't complain. Just turn the mirror around so it's facing you. You're going to find the problem much faster. Yeah, that's good. And here's another one, which, uh, I'm again, I'm harking back to uh, our movie, Becoming Nobody. Yeah. Um, by the way, Hopefully you're in New York in September when it opens at the Rubin. What date? It'll be opening September 6th and playing through uh, October off and on at the oh. Rubin. Uh, depending on what day September 6th is. Uh, it, well, it's playing after that. Uh, actually, yeah. I'm coming in September 14th, everybody. I'll be down in New York at the Rubin at 6 o'clock is the movie on the 14th, which is a Saturday, and then we're going to have wow. a panel. Sharon wow. Salzberg is going to be there. My friend David Silver, and yeah, if you're around, you you should come by. Well, That's here's a, I know what I'm doing. I know exactly where I'm going to be that weekend, which is the 13th to the 15th. I'm doing my uh, mindfulness meditation teacher training program at Tibet House. We're running a, a series of it this fall at Tibet House. Well, maybe it'll be over at the end of the day. Yeah, you know? I'll come over afterwards on yeah. Saturday night. Beautiful. Sorry, everybody, to, to do this little arrangement oh, no, no, with no. David. But I, the reason was because this other uh, point that he makes in the book is, is a primary point in the movie. And, of course, everyone who knows about Ram Dass, knows Ram Dass, and has listened to Ram Dass, knows how important humor is yeah. in, in everything we do on the path. And uh, you're, don't take yourself too seriously is uh, a part of that so yeah yeah that's a whole chapter in the book don't take yourself too seriously and, and i and i linked it with the illusory nature of reality which is a kind of profound version of not taking yourself too seriously hmm. yeah the poignancy yeah. of the illusory nature of reality well that's that's compassion if you don't have that you you just look at people as if they're dreaming and you don't care yeah and and but i think those two go hand in hand don't you think compassion i mean a sense of humor yeah. suddenly you you start to open up a little bit there create a little bit of space around the stuff that's just after you're glued to and you can't seem to let go at all 
so it's like uh, the you the you Tibetans out there would call the Vajra uh, of, of wisdom that allows the space to open up just for enough yeah. a second, right? The image of the, the clouds are the obscurations and then suddenly a little bit of blue opens up and yeah. you start, you can see then a little yeah. bit more clearly. So, yeah. Yeah, probably the uh, offspring of ultimate reality is Ma. Ma. You know, that's the first iteration is, you know, a, a kind of compassion and, and, and support for living being. And then from there, it's skillful means how to, how to, you know, that's what we were talking about in LA last week, how, how to actually be effective when you mean to be compassionate, how can you actually be effective? And that's a really interesting topic too. Yeah. yeah. But no, no problem with a shameless plug. Let's get that plug in. So what, what are the dates for, for the Ram Dass film? September 6th in New York. Actually, it's opening up in San Francisco. It's opening up in Los Angeles and New York on September 6th of Great. 2019. Yeah. And then it'll go across the country to about, I don't know, 30, 40 uh, theaters in about 25 cities and becomingnobody.com. Go there and it'll show you the trailer and you will be able to see where it's playing and when it's playing and actually purchase a ticket. Thank you for that, Mr. Nick Dern. That yeah. was a good now, idea. Yeah, now we're in the business portion of the book. Yeah, right. If, you, if you're going to say it, say it clearly. Let people know where and when and why they should come. Yes. So while you're doing that, I'm going to say you're also invited September 13th to 15th to Tibet House um, for a level one open open weekend for the introduction to the teacher training program, which stands alone. You can go to Tibet House website. And Bob Thurman, our favorite <laughs> um, what you know, professor uh, emeritus, is going to be joining me for the first night and the and Saturday morning, and then we're going to be off to off without him. Um, it's what about Bob? <laughs> it's, what about Bob? Was that a movie? Bob. Yeah. Oh, you don't know it, so you won't get that joke. Okay. Yeah. What about Bob? Is with Bill Murray? Is oh golly, man. Oh, I do know it. He was a therapist or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. No. So who was Richard Dreyfus? Was his yeah, therapist? Right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. What about Bob? Yeah. Uh, so that's terrific. Uh, okay, but before we go, um, yeah, I just want to ask one thing about the, the, that I looked at and went. Okay, this is interesting. No one to stop polishing a tour, a turd, a toured. A turd. Rondo, you don't know how to say a turd? No, I'm from Canada. We don't say turd. We turd. Tour. Okay. Okay. Uh, is this uh, le français? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> le tour. Okay. Uh, you say when you're producing, usually working with an artist, uh, how many times have we said this? It, you know, pouring yeah. good sauce on bad throwing good money after bad and yeah. this is really bad okay this thing that you did it's worse than the spaghetti thing monkey mind thing uh by planting it in your mind you mean yeah you planted this thing stop feeding a dead <laughs> pet that totally oh, yeah. my whole stomach went inside out uh, i thought of all my pet oh my god you yeah well, I made that one up, but the stop polishing a turd came from Linda Gottlieb, who produced Dirty Dancing, who was my producer when I was doing the music for One Life to Live for many, many years. Yeah. And that was her line. Stop polishing a turd. Okay, let's start fresh here. You know, let's not keep 
going on and on this. So the long story short here is that um, uh, I'm I'm kind of I I feel like I left my full offering on the field with this book because it's comprehensive. I didn't have to splinter myself off. What about the part where I'm a musician? What about the part where I'm a Dharma teacher? What about the part where I'm a, a business person? And putting it all uh, together into one package, uh, creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. And when I say it to people, they go, ah, there's a lot of recognition of like a similar, uh, you know, that it's magnetizing to them. So I just want to let people know it's coming out October 8th. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to have some sneak. If you guys are coming up to the Kirtan Festival at Omega, we're going to have some there. Oh, yeah. beautiful. And Christian yep. Das, of course, uh, David plays with Christian Das. Um, and, but certainly, uh, one of the most important things you said in, in the whole podcast was uh, once you start to see all of these threads, as uh, in, in the Ramayana, I think the analogy is there. In the Ramayana, it says, tie your relationship to your mother, your father, your friend, your God, your b -b -b tie it, uh, your teacher, whatever. Tie one thread to mm. the feet of Ram so that everything that, going, that is going on in our lives is only one thing, which is what you said before. And yeah. that one thing you... So every part of it is perfectly designed to have us uh, be more of who we truly are. So, that, and if, if there is a hierarchy, which you're implying there, I agree with that choice. The spirituality has to be the the um, the central tentpole. If you're not right with yourself and you, you don't yeah. have a clear, happy mind, no amount of external success will 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 get you where you need to be. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Uh, everybody, uh, there'll be links to the book, pre-order it and all that stuff, uh, along with uh, David's written a couple other wonderful books. Oh, see, you have one too. Oh, that's good. Uh, so there you go. Thank you, David, so much as usual. Thank you, Raghu. Uh, um, we will see. Oh, uh, wait, wait. David has some podcasts coming out on the Be Here Now Network. Okay, You signed me to your label. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I didn't even know about it until someone told me. Uh, but uh, who are a couple of the uh, people that you've uh, chatted with? Ah, well, the first one is coming up pretty soon, and it's in sync with it's the title is Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. So I'm interviewing people I consider to be manifestors in some way. And uh, in some way of these principles. So the first one, the first one is Danny Goleman, is on the first podcast. Oh. Who, who, as people know, wrote Emotional Intelligence, yeah. and he's kind of one of our tribe. You know, he's one he, of us. Not kind of. We yeah. were in India together. Yeah. Then. No, I mean, I'm just you know, in the broadest stroke. He, yeah, you yeah. Know, he's well, with no. Us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. I got to listen but, to that. But but then then the next one is Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, oh. I'm sort of, and then I have Pete Holmes, I think, coming oh. up. And then, um, uh, you know, I, I've sort of flipped back and forth between people who are very much into the business side of the thing or very much into the creative side. Mm, um, good. But they all have some thread through all three. Like Jamie, for example, is a meditator. Mm. She's been sitting every day for, th for three years. Uh -huh. 
doing right. method practice. So I, I, I'm having a kind of the same kind of conversation you and I just had. Yeah. Very similar. Oh, wonderful. Okay, through, great. Yeah, yeah, through the lens of those individual people and having fun is the most important part. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure, which we've had so much of. So thanks again, Dave, for being here. But thank you, Raghu. Uh, everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you will find extraordinary podcasts. All right. Talk later. Mm-hmm.